Real estate accounts for 39% of society's total carbon, and three quarters of that comes from operations, when buildings are actually in use. New materials and technologies can only take us so far, but there is one mechanism that is always in our control, the way we work. Construction is a traditional field, pretty set in its ways. And too often, departments are isolated in their thinking, working in silos. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Jane Sophia. This week we are bringing you a special live recording from the Footprint Plus conference in Brighton. The UK has some of the most ambitious net zero targets in the world, and this event brought people from across the property and building sector together to talk about what can be done to reduce the footprint of the built environment. We partnered with WSP to put together a think tank on the building performance gap, which means the difference between actual energy usage of a building versus what's expected during design. But could also refer to a missing conversation between the facades designers and the mechanical, electrical and plumbing engineers. So we took some of them aside, found ourselves a room and a live audience. This event was hosted by Ayo Abbas, a built environment communicator, and she was joined by Michael Truesdell, WSP's Sustainability and Smart Buildings lead. Michaela Sakelli, their technical director for support for facades. And finally, Justin Brand, asset management director for the property developer Cellar. He has 20 years of experience in asset and investment management and is currently leading a team mobilising the 430,000 square foot Paddington Square development, which is directly adjacent to the new mainline station and also the new Elizabeth Line station in London. And with these guests, we began to have that missing conversation. Exposing the performance gap, the missing conversation. Because while we were preparing for this event, we noticed there was just one thing that we haven't been talking about. So buildings use around three times as much energy as design models actually anticipate. And that is, to put it mildly, a problem. Today, we are going to try to understand why that is and what can be done. And by the end of the think tank, we want to learn about the benefits that can be realized by bringing together both building services and MOP and facades to kind of work better together understand how false assumptions can create mystic opportunities and much, much more. And in the spirit of community and discussion, at times we want to hear your input. So as it's a podcast, we'll be asking you to clap once to indicate your vote for either a yes or a no. So if you could all kind of clap right now to test it. One, two, three. Yay. Um, <laughs> anyway, I'll stop. Uh, being funny. So on with the first question. So I'll think I'll kick everything off with you, Michael. Um, can you explain what you see as the key issues with the performance gap between design and real life buildings? Thank you. Yeah, I think the uh, performance gap um, effectively is a misalignment between expectations and what people want to see and what happens in practice. And you know, that has lots of dimensions. We can think about acoustics, which will be topical for today. Um, but also uh, your uh, light experience and importantly, energy. And you know, for me, being a mechanical engineer focused on building services work, 
the energy performance gap is really, really important, I think, of a significant issue. So that's where it being something you can't see and you can't experience as a building user, yeah. it's very easy to just expect other people um, in the facilities teams to be sorting that out. And um, yeah, really looking forward to talking about this more today with everyone. And Michaeli, what would you like to add to that? Well, yeah, I think that Michael touched a good point. So um, most of the time we try to work uh, in silos. So we. We are separate, we split, not because of any particular reason, just common practice. Uh, but what we ended up forgetting is that at the end, users will be using our own buildings that we design, and the way they act will have an impact. So when we talk about performance gap, I do believe that we should think holistically. There are different types of performances, which not necessarily mean just responding to a building regulation requirements, you know, increase the installation of, of a building or change the G value of a glass is, is about also how people will use it and how the building will operate. Okay. And Justin, um, what do you think in terms of other key issues for the building performance gap? I mean, as an asset manager, you said at the beginning, 75% of the carbon that, we, that the built environment creates is, is in use. And you know, we need to have an understanding. You know, we can design and design and design and design and we're always moving forward with designs and things are always getting better. But unless we have the ability to pause and look back and understand exactly how those buildings have performed in use, which is fundamentally where mo the majority of the carbon is going to come from, then we won't be able to improve. So for me, it's, it's constant improvement, it's constant monitoring, it's very important to have you know, aspirational targets for net zero by this date or that date, but we need to understand exactly how our buildings are performing, and the best way to do that is to look backwards. I, I appreciate that, you know, we've got a huge amount of uh, building stock that doesn't have the capability of doing it, but buildings going forward like Paddington Square do. And the analytics that we have and that create, we must share with the, share with the industry across all of the design world and also the asset management and the investors. Um, just a follow-on from that, Justin. So what do you think we are doing well as an industry and not so well in terms of building performance? I think, well, as an industry, we are constantly looking for improvement. You know, from a design perspective, from a planning perspective, from a statutory perspective, we are driving in the right direction. Absolutely, okay. we are. From a what do we not do as well as we could do is the engagement with everybody. So, for example, the operational team that run Paddington Square need to be involved as early as is humanly possible. And for me, that's you know, Reba stage two. We need to have an understanding of why you're designing, what you're designing, and when. There's no point bringing, you know, don't build it and then give it to us, because we will then have to start retrofitting and, and answering questions that we, should, we could have answered and we could have designed out way, way, way in advance. Okay. And for me, that is the single biggest easy win that we can do, is engage with the operational bodies and teams that are gonna run these buildings as your designer. Okay, thanks, Justine. Um, so in terms of, and now it's time for your kind of first audience vote. So, and question one is, is closing the energy performance gap a particular priority for you? And the answers you can give are yes or no. So here we go. Is closing the energy performance gap a particular priority for you? If it's clap now for yes. Oh, and clap now for no. Okay, and the winner unsurprisingly is yes. <laughs> and, on to our kind of next question. So, over in the floor. So, it sounds like the building design process doesn't think enough about how people actually use buildings. How can we design buildings around the way people want to use them? Justin, do you want to start off on that one? 
So, I mean, one of, one of the things that we will, you know, we will all have experienced as part of the pandemic is the use of buildings has changed dramatically. So Paddington Square, as an example, was designed pre-pandemic. We need as much flexibility designed into the buildings as is humanly possible. The world is moving faster than that ever has done before. Our operational requirements and our occupier requirements are changing very, very quickly as well. And the occupiers, you know, whether it's you know, a fintech company or a, uh, you know, a, a packaging company, there is a significant difference of requirement as to how they want to use the buildings. And that, the that way flexibility, Justin, if you're, if you're thinking about that in terms of, say, controls, you know, do you want your tenants being able to fiddle with the temperature controls or the FM teams that you're responsible for going to be keeping that control back? You know, how, how much of that flexibility would actually be handed over in practice? That, that, that's a very interesting conversation. And all the FM directors in the, in the tenant companies that we talk to mm. all, all tell us not to give it to everybody. Mm. Um, you know, what is that? There's yeah, that tension, there, isn't yeah, there? there? There has to be a relationship that runs the whole way through the design team, the, you know, the investors, the mm. operators, and the occupiers. Yeah. So we all understand how the building works. And we have to have a data analytics package that gives us the ability to see how it's performing. Because I'm sure day one, it won't perform how it was designed to perform depending on fit outs uses exactly how we run the building and it is getting all of those people lined up and having the clarity if you can't see it you can't improve it and it's the constant improvement that we need to do and it's the data analytics package and the obsolescence that we want to get out of the building so it can be as as great as it can be for as long as it can be and Michael, have you got anything you want to add to that yeah i, th I think that yeah definitely flexibility is spot on i think we also as designers need to approach it from an holistic perspective, really working team as we have been doing with Paddington since early stages of design with Michael and his team um, in designing the facade in a different way uh, because we also need to avoid the risks of uh, over-engineering elements to give too much flexibility. So it's always a trade-off, but definitely everyone needs to be involved since early the stages mm -hmm. as Justin mentioned before. Fantastic. And Michael, is there anything that you think can be done in terms of how we can kind of improve the way we design buildings in terms of how people use them? Well, I think uh, it's really important that we've got the right targets to start with. And that's where, you know, going back to your question before around, you know, what are we doing well? I think the fact that we are talking about performance-related targets, neighbours becoming popular, uh, being imported from Australia, that's the, the really positive thing. But where I worry about what can we do as designers to respond to that, I feel like we're not thinking about the controls aspect anywhere near enough. And okay. this is where, you know, it's great that we have all of this focus on energy use intensity, really refining the way we do design, but how in practice are we actually going to help the facilities management teams to keep things under control? That's, so, that's the challenge. I'm going to ask you two a question as designers. So yeah. how often do you visit projects that you've designed once they're built? I have not enough. <laughs> it's not never, I can say. But it, it's, Michele? yeah, not enough. <laughs> I agree. Not, not, maybe not enough. But, that's um, no, but I think that um, on the other hand, we also need to to remember that you know the design process is not always straightforward. It's not always easy to deal with, and what we need to also do not forget is that is how the user we're gonna use a building. You know, most of the time. I challenge everyone to walk around central London, you see fully glazed buildings. If, if we are lucky, there are fit out blinds inside. Most yeah. of these blinds are down because users are glared and the electricity goes up 
because everyone's which on the the lighting. Have we thought about the comfort of people sitting around that, or yeah. have we just answered to the code compliance of having yeah. a certain amount of sun? So designed for people and their actual users, Absolutely. Right? Yep. Blind control is a big big topic for you know, building services and facade engineer. It would be great to get that um, Working improved. Yeah, Fantastic. Sure. Okay, so now it's over to you guys again. So on to our second vote question, which is, are your design processes really focused on building operations, including having FM managers involved in the early stage design? The answers you can give are yes or no. So the question is, are your design processes really focused on building operations, including having FM managers involved in the early stage design? Clap now for yes. Oh, that doesn't Ooh. sound that convincing. Clap now for no. Okay, so all these FM people have got to be involved. That's the, uh, the response yeah. on this one. That's definitely a reflection on you know, my experience as well. You've really got to chat, seek it out as a building services designer. It's not something that is part of the natural process. And, you know, there is so much momentum in the way we behave in the construction industry. And, you know, that's something we absolutely need to change. Well, and, and, that, and that's yeah. the easy win. You, you know, it just just talk to just talk to the operators, talk to you know, but talk to them as soon as you possibly can. Yeah. yeah. And that's you know that's that's what we try to do as much as possible. We get them in as early as possible. So whose conversation is that to start? Is it us as a design team, Justin, or is it more about? Well, so as an investor for twenty years, yeah, I would say that the investors need to make sure the design team are doing it. Okay. Um, you know, it would be very helpful if the design team came with that and said, Mr. Inventor, or Mr. and Mrs. Investor, we are going to do it this way and these are the reasons why. Yeah. But fundamentally, from my perspective in the last 20 years, I will drive that from the top because you know, it means I won't be retrofitting things. I won't, be, I won't get a building that all of a sudden doesn't do what I think it was going to do. Yeah. Doesn't have the ability to improve itself, becomes obsolete more quickly. And all of a sudden I've invested in something that is not as great as it could be because we should have started and thought about it from day one. Yeah. That said, don't over-design it so it costs a fortune, but there's a balance that <laughs> well, you've got to get and you have to have that conversation to get that balance right. Fantastic, thank you. So in terms of why isn't the kind of multidisciplinary approach taken into account building operators and building services and facades already, what's stopping this happening now? I'm gonna kick off with you, Michael. Mm -hmm. In my view, a lot of it is this inertia that I, I mentioned. You know, we're the, the juggernaut that is the construction industry. Uh, each little component, we think we just do what we did on the last job. You know, yeah. The project management team will get their list of consultants that they need to appoint, go to the client and say, we're going to appoint these, these companies to assist in the early stage design. That list typically won't have the FM uh, operator sort of role in there. And, and so we've the systematic change we need, I think, will happen slowly. But if we want to accelerate it, we've really got to think about these moments in the process where intervention can happen. And you know, it, it's getting the right people involved at the right time. And for you, Justin, what's well, stopping it happening now? There are so many moving parts. If, you know, if you're going to go from a brownfield development site through to something lovely and shiny and, and beautiful, there are so many constituent parts to get from A to B. And, you know, and time and cost is, a, is an integral part of that. And again, as an investment manager, time kills return. So you try and do everything as quickly as you possibly can. And without deliberately doing it, we end up siloing ourselves. You know, there'll be people that are just dealing with the design, people that are just 
dealing with the planning team, just with the building regs, just with this, just with this, just with this. And bringing them all together and bringing them all together early takes time and therefore takes money. But yeah. it is understanding the fact that you'll end up with a better product. You'll end up, you know, and hopefully the fact that we are you know, now having products that have to have the right carbon analysis, the right carbon performance, that will drive us into an environment where we have to talk to each other. It's not just a pound, shillings and pence conversation. It is a, that has got to be correct, but also we have to have a building that's obsolescence rate is as slow as possible and is right for investors, for occupiers, for the construction world that build it, but also the community within which it sits. Yeah. And you've got to get all of those things right. And it's a challenge. It is a huge challenge. I was going to say, yeah. But, it, but we've all got to head in that direction. And what do you think stopping it, Michaela, from your perspective? Well, uh, I personally think that, unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know, we live in a short-sighted industry, so we, we tend to be focused on stages. So the first thing is getting the, the minimum, let's say, design team investment to go through planning, get planning so we can get more money in to, to build the building or to de develop the development. But in reality, I do believe that this is really short-sighted because when, when we bring in early uh, some input from different specialists, we're actually saving money uh, later on in the yeah. process. So uh, we, we, we launched a, a motto which is called Small Change, Big Impact. And we saw that, for example, if you take an average office building in London and you work as we are doing with Michael on another scheme, uh, very early on, to save even 1% of embodied karma on the facade, yeah. you are saving, in this very specific case, we save alpha million trees. So that shows the cost of the investment. Yes, it was a bit early on in the process having people like facade engineers and ME engineers very early, but we made a big saving with yeah. very little effort. So it's really about working all together. As and Justin mentioned, we really need to, really to change a bit the approach as an industry. Fantastic. So anyway, as we're kind of drawing to a close today, um, I just wanted to ask each of our panellists for their reflections on what they see as the top priority to change and what we can kind of implement now to close the performance gaps we've closed today. So, Michael, as you began first, do you want to go first in terms of responding? I'll say two things. So first, uh, we've absolutely got to have the right targets, you know, the right lever, and the lever has to actually be connected through to the outcome. And mentioned before, you know, the neighbours rating, a building performance rating, where people are actually using the energy bills, that's just the first part of it. But the second part is, uh, for me, is all about the controls. And I'll just offer a, 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 uh, an example from uh, the Paddington Square project that we're working on to illustrate. We have this uh, excellent mechanical system that we're really proud of, a um, big, really hybrid heat pump uh, system where we can get up to sort of, eight, I think it's 80 something, 88% of the heating could come from the heat pump and only peak winter loads would be met with a boiler. And so that's all great, we're very happy that we can do that, but if we don't work really closely with sellers' teams to make sure the operations of that heat pump are working properly and the controls are configured week to week, yeah. and it's, you know, it's off being maintained, it'll just be the regular boilers all the time. And so that's why the controls are just gonna be so important in practice. And for you, what's your top priority for change, Justin? So, there's the, the two really is flexibility and clarity and, and you know leading on from from Michael if you don't understand how your building works then you, you know it's a hybrid plug-in hybrid car that you never charge up it's just a car that's petrol driven driving around with a load of heavy batteries in it so yeah, the operational 
team have to have clarity from the design team of exactly how it works. And that is where the clarity and the, and the flexibility of running the building as, as efficiently as we possibly can in a world where we are going to get 48 retailers and restaurateurs and a load of office occupiers who will all treat the building differently and will have slightly different drivers for what they want to deliver from the building. So, as I said, the flexibility to be able to be, you know, provide the right building for a, for a multiple occupancy basis, but also the clarity and the data in order to make it a building that is constantly getting better. And we're constantly yeah. understanding how in use it works as well as it possibly can. And for you, what's your key priority or takeaway? I, I think that approach it the design holistically, first of all, and second, try, and so we just mentioned before you know, about early engagement, to try to get the key stakeholders early in the process, because the investment you do early is actually a saving you ended up having later on. And what you don't realize sometimes is that when you committed very little into your design, you're already committed to very a lot at the end. As Justin mentioned before, you know, you need to then retrofit, and retrofit may have implication of costs, but also limitations because you didn't think about it early in the process. Okay. So definitely early engagement, holistic is early engagement. The okay, fantastic. Thanks. And now we're going to move on to questions from the floor. So I'm going to kick off um, with the first question. Um, so I've been wondering, um, in terms of blinds, we're talking a lot about blinds. Mm. So how can they actually help MEP, Michael? So often, embarrassed to say with blinds, you know, as MEP designers, we'll be concerned that they might not get used, they'll be left up, or they won't work, they won't get maintained. And so we'll quietly design the mechanical system to be big enough uh, for the blinds not to work. And so we've got extra cooling in that you need. And that's a, you know, a huge missed opportunity. You know, what, what I would like to see is us working more closely with facade teams like we do in certain projects where we actually commit together to designing a system where the blinds matter. If we don't have that contribution for the blinds, the, the chillers wouldn't be big enough. Yeah. So I, I think that's really, you know, exactly as Michele had said, you know, we take this holistically, what are the opportunities and blinds changing the size of the mechanical systems would be a great thing to prioritise project to project. Fantastic. Okay, and we've got a question from the floor, so it's from Anonymous, whoever that is. Um, so the first one is, is the fear of PI claims stopping designers deviating from what the design codes say to develop more appropriate solutions for buildings? So is PI claims the issue? Is um, so I, I can take that. I think um, the general sort of risk of PI claims is always sort of keeping our hands steady. But I would say it's even um, less, less of, a, of a significant sort of risk. Uh, it's just the fact that we have design criteria that's agreed. A lot of it's linked to the BCO standard, for instance, for office buildings in particular. Yeah. And, and so there, there isn't really an expectation that we would have conversations with clients about diverging from design criteria. Now, um, it, it, it's just the practice. Everyone's used to doing that. I'm pleased to report, though, that we are, as an industry, very much engaged with talking to SIBSI and you know, the BCO about changing so that we can have conversations with clients about having smaller allowances for um, you know, your small power, for instance, which makes the cooling system smaller. So, do, yeah. How do you see the PI claims risk? Well, it's a very interesting conversation because I've never even thought about it. No, it's a good question. <laughs> probably because probably I'm a client and I don't have to deal <laughs> with that, but I can say in 20 plus years of 
being in this industry, I've never, ever seen a PI claim based on anything like that. Okay. So perhaps it's the fear that it, does, that it doesn't really exist. I might be wrong. I'm sure you'll all sit and look at me and say, well, I've, been, you know, I've had issues with X, Y, and Z. But as I say, as a, as a client, I've never, ever seen any of that. Yeah, I think it's just we do what we did last time. That's the honest fact. And you know, we so, are, though, as an industry now, moving the dial in this space and absolutely we must. You know, it's an important thing that needs to happen. I think some, on the other end, what we have been noticed is that um, as a result of Grenfell, um, some clients ask for an increased PI cover, particularly yeah. when you look at the facades. And that, that is what is sometimes causing difficulties to other um, uh, colleagues in the industry in getting on board or being able to to, to tender for, for some process. So yeah, there is an issue there, isn't it? It could be, yeah. Um, I've actually got a question. So in terms of measuring the building performance gap, how would um, you set up, and, I guess gather the necessary data of it in the data? How, how do people do that, Michael? So uh, the, there is a lot of data already available in just energy metering systems, that's the start. But the, uh, the insight that you really want to be able to add as a layer on top of that is correlating energy use with plant performance. And so that's where you need to be actually monitoring all of your subsystems, how they're controlled. And then on top of that, having a clear understanding of occupancy. And so, you know, tracking how many people are using the buildings and having an approach to really proactively uh, control. So that, that's really what's missing, I think. People know how bad things are. Your energy use intensity numbers, you've all got yeah. quietly published in your ESG report <laughs> and then sort of put that down. But really to take those numbers and figure out a strategy to save, you need to know how busy is your building and where and then have systems that can, can respond to occupancy. And that's what, that data is not, that data is hard to come by. And yeah. is that the data that you think is missing or from a client perspective for you? I think from an industry perspective, you know, a building is a living, breathing thing. Um, you know, people use it in very different ways. If you, know, if you haven't used an office or a, or a meeting room for three days, why the hell are the lights and the air conditioning on? You know, that's simple, straightforward things. But it, you know, it goes back to the analogy of, of, of the hybrid car that you, don't, that you don't charge up. It's got to be about proactive maintenance as well. If you've got a chiller unit or something that's not working, the sooner you see it, the sooner you fix it, the more efficient and effective your building will be. And you won't have breakdowns, you won't have issues with your occupiers. You will be able to run a much more environmentally friendly building and a better occupational experience. And for me, you've got to have Justin, the data. This reminds me actually, a colleague of uh, mine, uh, Jimmy Carney, is a, a director in the um, WSP in the US, very involved in building operations. A quote from her, she was saying, building operators need to think of buildings like farmers think of the land. Yeah. You know, saying it's a living, breathing building. You know, if you want to see a building operator out to lunch, it starts raining, and they literally run back to the building to go and change something. And that that sort of dynamic back and forth needs to really ramp up. You have to be able to see it. If you if you've got no data, you're blind, and the building will just sit there and do yeah. whatever the building does, and they'll use it however they use it. Yeah. You have to be able to see it, and that's the challenge with built buildings. But you know, luckily with Paddington Square and things we do, we're going to do going forward. We will inbuild all these systems. And from your facade perspective, is there any kind of data or any? How do you kind of go around measuring the performance of that? It's a very good question. So, um, as I mentioned before, I think that one of the things is, is really working very closely with the ME engineers, trying to understand how the requirement is set and how do we respond it, uh, but also integrate the need that the client have 
in terms of monitoring data, for example, around maintenance or even users. So we, there are technologies out there that can be used that allow the, the fabric, the building envelope to adapt to a user the request. Uh, it's just a matter of making sure this is part of the design. The last, the last thing we don't need to forget, particularly when we look to, to the envelope, is that um, is the architecture. So the envelope is how a building will appear to, 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 to the world. It's a yeah. business card of a building. So we always need to have all this in mind. The last thing we want is a concept, a very nice concept developed from an architect then being trans transformed into a responsible requirement set from an ME engineer and then someone else needs, needs to manage the asset. That's the, the last thing we really want. It's all going to be integrated. Absolutely. Fantastic. Anyway, so thanks. And to bring this uh, part of the FinTech to a close, um, I guess some of the kind of key themes we've spoken about today in terms of the building performance gap are very much about, I guess, focusing far more on the users and, and also gathering the right data. So as an industry, we're not just looking at it from a design perspective. We've also got to make sure that we're building in flexibility and that we have clarity in terms of its overall use and the overall data. And we also need to take a far more, I guess, a holistic approach where we break the silos down as well. So thanks again to um, Justin and Michael and Michele for your insights. Um, and if you want to give them a round of applause, that would be great. You might not. <laughs>
Yeah, so Passive House, I think, really shown uh, what best practice can be for residential buildings. Uh, but it does come at um, at cost, uh, you know, at least in terms of the, the detailed work that needs to be done to deliver them with the high-performance facades and, you know, the very small building services systems that result. But I, I think we can say definitively, though, that even if we shouldn't enforce a standard like Passive House on all projects, the industry can take some of the best practice ideas that have been proven with Passive House, such as designing out thermal bridges or really designing building services systems to be smaller, and that, that would be of great benefit. But we can't really expect a one-size-fits-all, especially for existing buildings. And question three... We mentioned controls earlier. What is viably being put in place as a solution for those heating control issues that FMs are facing? Well, uh, you know, building management system, you know, the sort of classic BMS software, is effectively used to manage the heating and cooling. But I think the key point, though, is depending on the sophistication of the management process, these BMSs can be left pretty well unsupervised in smaller buildings, especially. So a modern smart building solution could allow for aggregated kind of cloud-based analytics to go across a number of buildings if they're smaller so that you can get that efficiency to actually be able to bring in a management process on top. But really, you know, combining that increased management and increased visibility that can come from having smart building software with clear kind of ESG energy use intensity targets. I think those two things coming together as well will get the big impact and closing the energy performance gap that we're looking for. For, for me, um, it's all about bringing together the data and the management. The, the data is extremely helpful and without the data, you can't improve, you know, have constant improvement, but the management systems are you know, an integral part of it. And that, by that, I mean the human interaction, the interaction with the tenants, the understanding of how they use their building. Such a huge percentage of the carbon created by the built environment is from the usage and therefore understanding exactly how your tenants and how the landlord uses the building is an integral part of making it as great as it possibly can be from an energy performance uh, basis. So I think it's the combination of the two. It's the building management system and the data you create, but also the management systems that you put in place, both from a landlord perspective and with the tenants. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. Your hosts today were Alex Conacher, Jane Sophia, and Io Abbas. This episode was recorded in front of a live studio audience at Footprint Plus in Brighton. Sound engineering was by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, and our own broken silo is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner WSP, and thanks also to Cellar. And thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps and on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media.